My name is Erin Kenny, and I'm a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode where I have a very special guest, Caroline Weeks. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Erin. It's so good to be here. So Caroline and I were just reminiscing a little bit over how we first met, and we're kind of joking about our love story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. So Caroline, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I don't even remember. We were trying to get our stories straight just a couple seconds ago because it seems like yesterday that we were just um, eating at this really cool vegan restaurant in Philadelphia together uh, during the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. But Erin and I have been Insta friends for many years. I have followed you for so many years before your Instagram blew up and before you became a big deal. (laughs) I was one of your original followers. Um, And I've just always respected you for how authentic you are and how thoughtful you are and how you approach research. And I just love that. You are such a unique voice in this oversaturated field of nutrition and health. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're not supposed to be bragging about me. This is, I'm supposed to be bragging <laughs> about you in the intro. Oh, thanks. So Caroline is awesome. And like she just mentioned, we have been, you know, not only just colleagues, but close friends for many years. And it was great to finally meet her at Fancy. And there is no better person to have on this podcast episode today um, than her. She is a true expert in her field. Caroline is a pediatric registered dietitian who has a very obvious passion for educating families on how to provide nourishing meals from the beginning of life. She is a postpartum nutrition and child feeding expert and has a particular interest in teaching the baby-led weaning approach to starting solids, which she's going to tell us all about because I am just as curious as those who are listening. I am definitely not informed on this topic. And in her full-time career, she is a clinical dietitian who works with families of children with chronic medical conditions, such as gastrointestinal disorders and cystic fibrosis. Amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you. Thanks. And as if this is not enough, she has (laughs) over seven years of experience in professional nutrition writing for several publications, including USA Today and Eat This, Not That. Yes. So Caroline, thank you for the amazing work that you are continuing to do. And, you know, today's episode I am excited for because there's so much that I can learn from you and I hope the listeners can take away um, some really great stuff. So thank you for- so too. Yeah, let's let's dive in. Yeah, so we are going to be talking about gut health as it relates to the very earliest years of life and within the infant stages. And uh, obviously, my niche on Instagram is teaching the baby-led approach to starting solids. Um, I will kind of give a disclaimer and say that I'm of the philosophy that feeding is um, totally the parent's prerogative, and I most definitely support parents in whichever way they decide to start solids with their baby. So I might recommend um, purees to one family if that's what makes them comfortable. Uh, but on Instagram, uh, I, I talk about baby led weaning just cause that is a passion of mine. So you had asked me what baby led weaning was. 
Um, because I think it's really, most people had never, have never heard of it. And to be honest, when I was in practice in pediatrics toward the beginning, I had never heard of it either. And that's because it has really only started to gain popularity within the United States within the last few years. It was um, originally most popular in the UK and in Europe. And the idea is that when baby shows signs of developmental readiness to begin solids, you skip over purees entirely and you offer table foods to begin with that are offered in a developmentally safe way that wouldn't cause a choking episode. Um, so it might be kind of difficult for the reader to uh, envision or visualize uh, if they've never seen this before. But essentially what I'm doing, and, and I work with clients one-on-one -on -one in a coaching kind of type situation online virtually, where I will give baby a slice of avocado and a six-month-old will be going to town on a slice of avocado and they're <laughs> eating it. They might not even have teeth because teeth are not necessary to eat in the beginning. And it's just awesome. And and there's been some scientific data and research published on this style of feeding. The idea is that baby-led approaches really honor and internalize uh, honor the baby's internalized hunger and fullness cues. So if you think about starting with purees, where you know mom or dad is feeding the baby. Potentially, you could override those feeding cues if you're not feeding responsively or really paying attention to baby's fullness cues mm -hmm. because they have no control, right? They're completely out of control when they're being, I hate to say force-fed, but sometimes if you see parents feed their baby, it looks like they're force-feeding. Um, and so there have been some, some linkages between baby lead weaning and, um, you know, uh, lesser incidence of obesity later in life, uh, better weight management in the long term. And there has been some reports saying that potentially uh, fewer picky eaters that, that grow up. So I think it's great. And I, I have had a lot of success with it. And so if anybody's interested, you should definitely, you know, reach out to me on my site. I'm at the clinic dietitian on Instagram or do some, some of your own research for sure. Yeah. And she's got some amazing infographics on her Instagram too, which even if you're not a mom with kids right now, I mean, you know, pass the information on to people that are, or, you know, start soaking in the information. Cause I know for sure I want to be a parent one day and yeah. your information is pun intended, very digestible. And <laughs> Thank you. If you haven't realized from her voice so far already, she's very easy to talk to, especially like I can picture you talking to a baby. It's like the most soothing voice <laughs> ever. So <laughs> I get lots um, of practice. <laughs> You say that as if like you live at, live with someone who's a little difficult or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just lots of crying babies in clinic. <laughs> I figured that's what you meant. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to kind of chat about, um, you know, this baby led weaning and some feeding practices, partic particularly as they pertain to gut health. Mm -hmm. um, I love looking at the gut microbiome in the early stages of life. Again, that preventative mindset it kind of makes me envious of the work that you do because it's so cool that you're able to establish this groundwork from a very young age. And um, what you said to me, because I work with an older population, is what you just said, it sounded like intuitive eating for babies. Totally. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. I was just like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's the like the light bulb went off. Start them young, right? That's right. I love that. And that's why, why I feel I have a, such a passion for peds is... I do get to, my small interventions are like just 
times 10, right? Because they're smaller bodies. So any little difference is going to make a larger impact, but also too, you know, you get to really, uh, instill healthy habits from the get go. And so much of pediatrics is behavioral and, um, psychological, emotional. And so I get to work with parents and really kind of set their expectations in a proper place because so much of parenthood, because there's no training manual, right. Is like thinking that you've got to attain this like impossible goal that just isn't there. It doesn't exist. And so it's nice to kind of have people bring you down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important with food and nutrition because there's so much information. There's so many question marks, uh, even when it comes to babies. So, yeah. No, I love that. And, and one of the things I even had pulled from your website, um, prior to this was your mention of like how, food choices are rooted in family tradition and culture and especially that eating for, you know, well for one person can look very different than another person. I love this because, you know, we really talk about there is no one size fits all. And so really uh, you viewing it from a very holistic approach is, is awesome. It's just another reason why I love you. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so as Caroline mentioned, um, you know, she, she kind of highlighted that link between these, these early stage habits that we're developing and kind of later in life um, conditions. So we know that the gut microbiome is established at a very young age. And we actually used to believe that the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract was um, was actually sterile when the baby was in the uterus, but there's mm-hmm. new research that shows that this is actually not the case and mm-hmm. that a fetus's GI tract is actually colonized by bacteria through the amniotic fluid swallowed by the mother. So, so pretty cool to think that, you know, now we're, we're even seeing this, this, um, this laying the groundwork for a healthy gut starting even earlier than we maybe have thought that it was. Right. And we're seeing that this is so important for making, just having this as a consideration for knowing that at, at this early stage in life, we can have an impact of possibly preventing things like allergies, asthma, obesity, heart disease. Um, I mean, anything that's related to the gut microbiome, right? Because mm-hmm. 70% of our immune system is located there and any sort of disruption there is, we're seeing a whole cascade of health issues. So pretty exactly. cool, pretty cool stuff. It really is. And so many environmental things impact at the start of life. So um, I don't know if you wanted to dive into this right now, Erin, but we had talked about difference between vaginal birth or cesarean uh, birth and how those impacts the potential gut flora, um, skin to skin uh, after baby's first been born, you know, has been linked to improved uh, diversity in the gut microbiome. So all of those environmental things are important as well. That's awesome. And I think that skin to skin, people don't think, and this, this goes for anything you mentioned in, in the earlier part of the conversation too, the just emotional impact of, you know, behavioral mm-hmm. and emotional things, because those are, I think, underrated in terms of overall health in general. But, but let's come back to the, um, the C-sec- C-section delivery versus vaginal, because <laughs> this is a funny one, because I, on my intake form for my clients, um, because I specialize in gut health. And so- mm-hmm. I'll ask them what method of birth were you born mm-hmm. and I'll have a check for C-section or vaginal. And then we'll get to the initial consultation. They're like, why are you asking me which way I was born? And, <laughs> and honestly, you know, not that it's really going to change a course of action as to how I treat a client, 
but it gives me information that is also supported by research showing um, that infants born via C-section have a gut microbiota composition similar to the skin of the mother, whereas those who are born vaginally have a gut microbiota that resemble their their mother's vaginal microbiota. Hmm. So, so the research has shown that, that people who are born via C-section tend to have more health issues, specifically gut issues later in life, um, as well as mental health, skin conditions, and so on. And so honestly, the reason I ask it on my form is I'm, I'm actually just trying to gather research on my own and see that link. Right. I have noticed a trend that is, is consistent with the research. So very interesting. Wow. It's fascinating. Um, not something you can really control, right? I mean, so there's a lot of advice there. I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert in that. So, but the food, the food is something (laughs) the parents can control for sure. So there's hope. (laughs) That's very true. Um, so yeah, now maybe we can kind of talk about, um, formula or like artificial lactation. Um, like, so, so human milk is, in my opinion, just like this, this magical thing that comes out of mothers. I mean, liquid gold. <laughs> yeah. Liquid gold. I'm going to sound probably kind of silly when I talk about some of this, because again, I'm not an expert when it comes to, <laughs> to anything related to what Caroline does. Um, so I'm, you know, human milk contains proteins, fats, carbohydrates, but it also contains, um, immunoglobulins as well as endocannabinoids. And this one I think is so cool, the endocannabinoids. I didn't even know that. I that's so new to me. So I'm learning from you, Erin. You don't go you need to not I, cut yourself short. I read a research article, I can tell you that. Yeah. So um that's so for those who don't know um what an endocannabinoid is, I'm just gonna um kind of highlight it to something that's really popular as as a holistic cannabis practitioner, C B D is a phytocannabinoid. So I'm not going to go into this, but go listen to episode three to learn um, some more about the benefits of these phytocannabinoids, um, as well as the ones that are naturally produced in our body. But breast milk contains those. And that is so cool to me. That is really Um, cool. It also, which we were just talking about a few minutes ago, it also has oligosaccharides, breast milk does, which is a natural prebiotic, which I'm sure you've talked about in your podcast episodes several times already, but is kind of the food for the gut um, once it gets there. So I like to use the phrase, it seeds the gut, like you're giving the gut the food and you plant the probiotics in there, but then you got to feed them to grow them and to make them happy. So that's what one benefit of, of breast milk does. And actually I will say a lot of formula companies, because if a parent is listening and they weren't able to breastfeed, no big deal. I am totally of the mindset that fed is best. And now there's been so much, so many scientific advances with formula that they're actually trying to kind of in a lab recreate some of those things like the immunoglobulins. So I don't want to name any brands, but, um, but a lot of really cool research is being done that makes formula almost as good in almost every single way as the breast milk. So we've come a really long way. Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea about that. I, so I had read a recent, um, study reported that supplementation with, uh, pasteurized donor human milk was partially successful in promoting, um, a microbial community similar to infants who are breastfed. 
but that's awesome. And I, and I, when I was doing the research, I thought in my head, there's got to be someone out there who's trying to mimic. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think donor milk is tricky just because it's extremely expensive. And so that's the biggest barrier in my experience working with babies out of the NICU where their moms, you know, due to birth trauma, weren't able to breastfeed. And so sometimes they'll go the donor milk route, but honestly, I usually feel comfortable. um, And we together kind of come up with a plan to do formula and it works really well. And it doesn't mean that their babies any, you know, less or any bit behind another baby that was breastfed. And in many ways, I try to keep, keep it positive always, and just focus on the things that are in your control, which again, we'll, we'll dive into more with the food that is definitely in your control. Yeah. I, I definitely want to make sure I was sensitive about that because I, again, I'm not a mom, haven't ever had a baby. And I know that there's so many reasons why someone can't breastfeed and are, are probably super worried about the health of their baby. Like, especially because of the things that we're talking about. So I like that you, you pointed that out. That's great. Um, so antibiotic use is another thing that can really shift the composition of the gut microbiota, um, basically just decreasing overall diversity. So really important to use antibiotics when necessary, not, you know, using a heavy reliance on them. Um, but just wanted to point it out here that that the early use of antibiotics does tend to be associated with, you know, poor health outcomes later in life associated with dysbiosis or imbalance of gut bacteria. And the last one on my list here is the introduction of solids. So I mean, this is, this is how we segue into Caroline's expertise really is, um, you know, I've, I've looked at the research and seeing that solid foods promote the growth of beneficial bacteria by enriching genes coding to allow the baby to utilize a larger diversity of carbohydrates, synthesize or make vitamins and break down medication. So fabulous. Like, I mean, this is where the magic happens. <laughs> where the magic happens. <laughs> um, so I guess you already mentioned that term seeding the gut. I really, really like this. And um, so you, you are the expert on baby led, led weaning. I think you, you gave a great intro on kind of what it is. So I think that maybe um, segueing into why it's important and kind of how it relates to nutrition adequacy and the gut microbiome. Sure. Yeah. So I will um, kind of giving my disclaimer that it's definitely up to the parent to decide how they feed. I will kind of sound a little bit more pro baby lead weaning in this talk, just because um, I think a lot of the data research and a lot of my just um, experience as a clinician points toward baby lead weaning when it works as being a superior method. Um, And the reason for that, I believe, is that it just offers more flexibility. So one of the kind of hallmark aspects or pillars of baby led weaning is that uh, the family only has to make one meal. So one meal can be translated and sort of parlayed into a texture or a, a way that is safe for baby, right? Because a baby can't eat a lot of things or choking hazards. So it's we I work with clients to make sure that they're serving nutrient-dense foods that meet all the nutrients of concern for an infant, but then are also texturally developmentally safe for baby and something that challenges them um, and kind of, you know, kickstart their oral motor skill development, gross motor development, because that's one thing baby led weaning really t- uh, challenges, um, but always want to be safe. So uh, if, a, if a mom decides to feed purees, you know, one thing I, I do encourage parents to do 
whenever possible is to homemake purees. Mm. Um, just because again, there's more flexibility. If you go to any grocery store and you walk down the baby aisle and you see purees, the stage one, we're talking stage one level foods, which is, um, for infants. Typically when we talk, talk about starting solids, there's a pretty big spectrum, but it's anywhere from usually four to six months is when a baby will be developmentally ready. Um, I see kids all shapes and sizes from all aspects of the developmental kind of spectrum. So again, I have to just say those, <laughs> those numbers cause that's, yeah. But so it, it's no big deal if your baby starts later, like seven months, or if they were in the NICU and they're a corrected age, then maybe they'll start a little later anyway, but generally four to six months. And if you look at the types of foods on the shelves, they're boring as heck. <laughs> it's like bland turkey, uh, green bean, um, peaches. It's just one ingredient and you can't have any fun with them. So one of the things about making your own curries is you have opportunities to either add spices, which is something I love uh, with baby led weaning is introducing kind of mild spices to baby like uh, curry, oregano, basil, thyme, uh, turmeric, all of those things that some have been linked to better gut health, right? Turmeric, mint, things like that. Um, and so baby gets that exposure at a very young age and there's no research, no research saying that you can't introduce these things to baby. Literally the literature just doesn't support it. Some people will think like, obviously you're not going to give them an ancho chili or like a jalapeno <laughs> pepper. <laughs> uh, so there are limits, but people need to be told that though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So don't go hog wild crazy, but, um, within limits of like heat and spice, when I use the word spice, I'm really meaning flavor and aroma and things of that nature. So that's one aspect of kind of the baby lead weaning approach that babies get exposure to. Also, as you mentioned earlier, I work in a subset population of uh, babies, children, people with cystic fibrosis, and those babies require, their energy needs are sky high. So they require more calories from a young age. So oftentimes I'm teaching parents to add a little teaspoon of olive oil or coconut oil to foods to, to mix it up and to add calories in a natural way. So that's one aspect too of, of homemaking your baby food. There's just room for flexibility. Awesome. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, with, with first foods and hopefully we're going to get into that soon. Definitely. Um, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of old wives tales that really fuel medicine mm. that, um, a lot of pediatricians won't be on board with baby lead weaning based on maybe, I hate to sound ageist, but perhaps the years that they trained, it just wasn't a thing or they're just not familiar with it. Therefore, they're not comfortable with it um, because of that concern for choking. But um, a choking episode is extremely rare. And um, if a parent were to get CPR certified, had to take a course in infant CPR, which is often something pediatricians recommend they do anyway, mm -hmm. um, you'd be able to be very confident in identifying different between gagging, choking, etc. Um, but what I was meaning to say about that is, you know, so many times we say, okay, your baby's four months, doesn't matter where they are in the developmental spectrum, they're ready for rice cereal. Mm. <laughs> rice cereal is always the first kind of traditional first food or first puree that babies are offered. And there's no research supporting that that couldn't necessarily be something else mm. that we're going to eventually dive in and talk about would be really a more superior option as compared to rice cereal based on all the literature that show contaminants are in rice cereal. 
Yeah. And, and so correct me if I'm wrong. So is, is, is rice cereal typically the choice that they go with for babies because it's easy to digest and it's like the least likely to trigger an allergic response, um, because of, you know, gluten containing grains or the, the wheat containing grains? That's a great question. So it's kind of threefold. Um, number one, maybe the most I guess simple one would be it's an easy texture, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a simple kind of easy puree. So babies generally don't have any trouble um, maneuvering the bolus of food and swallowing it. That's that would be number one. Number two is it's an iron fortified food. So mm -hmm. at the time of starting solids, and the whole reason we enter complementary feeding is to increase the levels of iron in baby's system because it's so important. And around the age of seven months, the iron requirements and the needs of a baby are much, much higher as compared to previous months. So that is another reason why infant cereal and, and then is recommended. And then again, yeah, I think that's the old thought with the allergen is that rice is a hypoallergenic food, but, and I told you we wouldn't get into allergens today because that's literally like another two hour podcast episode. And yeah. I feel like I need to be backed by a physician on some of the, the information <laughs> on that. But the research is actually kind of flipping that concept on its head mm -hmm. and now saying that four months of age, depending on risk for atopy, um, you really need to introduce peanuts and some of the allergen allergenic foods really earlier mm -hmm. and that there's actually lesser risk for uh, uh, developing an allergy later in life if you start with earlier introduction. And the LEAP study, L-E-A-P, if people are research nerds, um, is really the hallmark study that sort of changed the game. It was a total game changer on that. So again, if you want to invite me for a later podcast, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, we can talk about that already. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. That's awesome. And so maybe we should segue into quality of baby food and just kind of like, I, I'm, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> I think my, my, my initial reaction to the things you were saying, I, I'm just thinking about right now in quarantine with my sister's dog being here and I'm like, can she eat this? Can she eat that? If I were oh. a mom with a baby right oh, now, I feel gosh. like I would need you on speed dial. Like, Thank I'm, you. I would, yes. yeah, I would, I would have so many questions. <laughs> a lot of my clients have me, like we DM on Instagram if they're okay. working with me one-on-one -on -one and, and they, I've gotten a lot of kind of freaked out questions, not going to lie during quarantine. And yes, anxiety has been through the roof. And if you're a mom out there listening, gosh, I've had so many friends give birth during quarantine. Like that is another just unfathomable experience. <sighs> so them. exactly. Um, anyway, but quality of baby food. Yeah, you have done. So I want to bring up, we, we talked about how rice cereal is often the first food recommended and how as dietitian, pediatric dietitian, I actually never recommend infant rice cereal as a first food. Um, and the reason for that is because rice in the United States and really in most parts of the world is high in arsenic. And arsenic is a chemical element found in the natural environment, like soil, rock, water, and air. So it's kind of hard to avoid. Um, but unfortunately, arsen arsenic is a carcinogen that has been linked to higher rates of skin, bladder, and lung cancer, and is also a neurotoxin. And it's been known to decrease uh, babies' IQs. And unfortunately, that's a permanent effect. And so it's non-reversible. 
And that's if they've been exposed to excess amounts over a chronic period of time. And so that really should be the number one reason why parents don't choose infant rice cereal as their number one. Um, I was talking to you earlier, there, there's a study that just came out on March 6, 2020, or a report rather, that said things are getting better. So a number of samples tested in 2018, everything always is a few years lag time, right, with nutrition and public health, um, said that the, uh, that certain, the, the amount of products tested, the, the amount that met the FDA's required target of 100 parts per billion was only 76%. Though this was better, compared to the years 2011 to 2013, only 36% of samples tested met the FDA's recommended target for safety. And that's just appalling, appalling. And not to mention 76% really isn't that great either. I mean, a C grade, meh, we can do better. I prefer the one zero zero a hundred (laughs) percent. Yes, I agree. Um, so just some tips, you know, so what do we, so what's the solution? So I would recommend if you are have if you do have a baby starting salads, skip the rice cereal and offer something like a baby oatmeal, baby quinoa, barley, buckwheat, amaranth, all of those are going to have lesser uh, levels and they're going to be naturally low in arsenic. So a much better, safer choice. Yeah. And, and for those who are listening, like maybe you don't have kids or you're thinking, okay, so I shouldn't maybe feed my, my baby, you know, predominantly rice products. This goes for just any human. I mean, if Correct. Human, um, you know, high levels of arsenic have also been to sh- shown to cause cancer in humans. So it's important that everybody tune into this point because it's very important. And um, this was, I did, it looked at a meta-analysis from 2019 showing that um, they did like a, an analysis of different rice purchased in the United States and they found higher levels of arsenic in, in all of these products. So, mm-hmm. so I think that as Caroline mentioned, you know, there's other sources of, of products out there, um, simply washing rice with arsenic free water. And I'm, I read this and I'm like, how do I know if my water's arsenic free? Um, but the idea is if you're, if you're, you're washing your rice, um, that can help remove, they showed it can remove up to three to 43% of the arsenic. So, you know, it could be useless for some, but if it removes up to 43%, that would be, um, awesome. And then you had mentioned, so other, other products out there that you could feed a baby. So what would those include? Yeah. So really, again, how I said, starting the whole concept of purees and starting solids, a lot of it's fueled by old wives tales and not really hard and fast science. There is nothing saying that a baby can't actually start with meat. So I actually recommend starting with uh, pureed meat as one of the first high iron sources. Obviously, if a family wants to raise a child vegan or vegetarian, they will gasp and <laughs> turn the other way right now. But uh, if they're raising an omnivore, then a meat uh, product would be actually preferred. Now, I do want to segue briefly into differences in quality. And again, would point to more reasons to make your own and to puree your own in a food processor. And that is because many of the baby food meat purees have added cornstarch as a filler. Mm. 
And cornstarch uh, in many uh, studies has been shown to negatively affect the microbiome and something we generally, you know, just don't want a lot of. And it's like, why? Why is cornstarch in it? Well, first of all, it's a binder and it helps keep everything together in a processed packaged product. But if you can avoid it, well, I would sure recommend it because really it, it kind of waters down and displaces the nutrients anyway. And it doesn't, you don't get as much bang for your buck per serving if you uh, purchase a product that has added cornstarch. So again, another reason why I'm very much a fan of the baby led approach. And again, when, if you work with me with your child online, um, I have your child eating fork tender pot roast <laughs> at seven months. I and I have videos to prove it. I'm happy for you to come on over to my page and, and we can uh, explore together. But um, not only are they, you know, getting that sensory input and sensory experience from touching and feeling and getting messy with the food, but they're also getting a nutritionally dense option, which is what I'm so passionate about. Wow. That's, I would love to be a baby eating, you know, some, some nice ground up prime rib right there. I'm on board. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, so this is just a selfish question, just because it's something that I know I've heard. Um, maybe it's a, one of those wise tales that you were talking about. Um, now, what are your, what's your take on fruits and sugars and introducing those to children? Yeah, I love that you bring the, the, this question up because it's so common. And parents think, oh my gosh, I'm going to spoil my baby if I start with fruit. And that is an old wives' tale, 100%. So our biological kind of DNA, all humans have a, a propensity for sweet things, right? Evolution states okay. that... <laughs> guilty, I know. <laughs> Where are the scotcheroos? I think scotcheroos in the West thing. <laughs> anyway, aside, um, evolution says that, you know, sweet things are safe, energy-dense foods, like the hunter-gatherer sees a berry. Woohoo! They're going to eat the berry. And bitter foods indicate danger or poison, right? Bitter foods are never good. Breast milk is extremely sweet. So baby, even when breastfed, is going to have this sweet taste already kind of priming their taste buds. So no, it's all about behavior and setting boundaries and behavioral kind of guidelines at, in the home. And that's kind of up to the parent to do that. Um, but no, it's very uh, untrue that a baby will be spoiled if you offer them a fruit puree or hand them a, a mango or something like that. Okay. Um, you asked me about juice. You got a question about juice from, from someone with, mm -hmm. with infants. Mm -hmm. um, juice. So there are a few foods that I, I always say, rarely am I a stickler and say hard and fast no on things with, with my practice, except for a few. And so um, there's certain foods that a baby should not have at all before a first year of age. And that would be number one, honey for risk of botulism. Number two, fluid cow's milk. We don't want any liquid cow's milk. We want either formula or breast milk mm -hmm. uh, because the nutrient levels are just not adequate. Um, and then we also, what was the last one? We also don't want beverages like juice and things like that. So um, that needs to come once they've reached the first year of age. I will say there's a caveat, however, that I use juice sort of as a medical tool, and that is in the setting of constipation. And I just okay. did a whole series on my Instagram on uh, GI-related stuff with infants, constipation. I yeah, I teamed up awesome. with a pediatric gastroenterologist, and we really dove into things, um, just kind of addressing parents' biggest concerns. Um, so 
if you think of the letter P, fruits, so plums, prunes, everybody knows prunes will get a good BM. Um, and then apples, I guess, is sort of different, and peaches maybe a little bit less. Those are what we call a high sorbitol-containing fruit. And so what happens is there's sort of this osmotic laxative effect where when the fruit is introduced in the GI tract, water gets pulled in from the lumen of the GI uh, system and then flushes out and then can, can, uh, kind of alleviate constipation. So in small doses though, like we're talking an ounce at a time at most. So that would be one instance I use fruit, but I see in practice, you know, you asked me about long-term effects on the health of too much fruit and, or or too much uh, juice rather. Um, and it's really just, you know, is this a good beverage? I mean, it's kind of public health nutrition. Like what what would we recommend to the average person? We don't want sugary beverages consumed because there's no fiber. There's, there's not that benefit. So that would be my, my two cents on the whole juice topic. I love your approach. It always very balanced, but scientifically, you know, supported and, um, I think my my question too is, so we know that a, a diverse gut microbiome is a healthy one. We want to keep it as diverse as possible and having variety mm-hmm. of foods. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about like, what if, what if, so that was my concern with the fruit is if we introduce it too soon, is the child not going to accept other foods? And then we now set ourselves up for lack of diversity and then, you know, poor gut health. So in mm-hmm. terms of just diversity and, and getting a good variety, how do you, like, do you have any, like, I know we could probably talk a whole episode, but any, like, broad advice? Is it exposure? Is it, um, you know, what's your take? Yeah, on? it's all about exposure. And again, it kind of ties into that behavior. So many times parents will give up too soon because their baby will fight them or they don't show interest because, yeah, I mean, a fruit tastes better than the spinach. <laughs> I mean, of course, but it's all about that consistency and persistence of parent just offering, offering, offering over and over again. And that's really all it is, in my opinion. And babies really will take a good variety. I mean, they don't know anything. It's going to taste better compared to what they've been used to, right? It's a whole new experience. Um, so just, the, uh, and I, I got a, another reason why the baby led approach can be superior is because it offers a possibility for more variety and variety is the name of the game with nutrition. Awesome. Now with my adult clients, I am recommending, you know, probiotic rich foods like yogurts, kefir, fermented veggies. Um, you know, what, what's your take on that in infants? Um, or like at what age is that? If, I don't know if that's even a question you can answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think because yogurt or some of those dairy-rich uh, foods are an allergen, um, it's not necessarily the first, very first food I recommend starting with, but very shortly after they're, they've been exposed to other foods, um, you know, I recommend small amounts of, of lactose-containing foods. We don't want a lot because babies' GI systems are not primed for that much lactose. Again, the reason why we don't want fluid milk, the, the lactose load is just too, too high. Um, but yeah, there is benefit to giving probiotic-rich foods. Now, when it comes to supplements, I'm really not a fan for infants. Um, the research and the guidelines say that uh, probiotic use is not a way to alleviate constipation. Mm. Um, it's just, you know, not the, the research just isn't. Um, isn't uh, robust conclusive enough. robust enough exactly yeah. um, thank you so 
So that would be something, you know, I would say just wait until a later, a later time and just focus on food. Because again, again, food is not meant to be baby's main source of nutrition at this time either. It's only Mm -hmm. complementary. So I want us to kind of, kind of put things in perspective a bit too. It does not replace breast milk or formula. That's the number one most important uh, nutrition source before one year of age. So this is just a way to kind of get them primed and ready for being an adventurous eater later in life too. That's awesome. Now, I think this is hopefully will be my last question. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep, keep drilling you. But, um, in terms of GI issues, like you work with a lot of parents, um, and I'm sure GI issues is something that you like are obviously specializing in and seeing with now, are there a few common things or mistakes that you see parents making? Um, I know, so I was, I was lactose intolerant from the get go. So I was actually Mm. formula fed. And, um, you know, very colicky baby, like always had a stomach ache, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so obviously my mom, you know, put me on lactate pills as I was getting older whatever. And, you know, it was no lactose. So, so what are some common things that you see in children when it comes to GI issues or mistakes that parents are making maybe that, um, people could take away from today? Definitely. Well, that's, this is a whole nother podcast episode in in and of itself. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so cow's milk protein allergy is a concern amongst infants. It is pretty rare though. And so, uh, I, I think I saw, I mean, I don't want to be quoted on the research because I don't remember the number or the facts, but I saw a study where, um, the actual true diagnosis of CMPA is much less than what physicians make it out to be, right? Mm. So oftentimes we'll over-medicalize colic or we will kind of make a bigger deal about gas or things than it really is. And babies are gassy, right? Because they're swallowing air when they're crying. Their GI systems are not yet mature. So they're changing on the daily. And so with that is going to come some GI upset. And I think across the age spectrum, we tend to sometimes over-medicalize GI problems, right? (laughs) Food is not the energy. Yes. I'm As sure you're saying you this, see I'm this like, all the time. I have a client who comes and they're like, well, I was bloated after I ate this. I go, well, bloating right? you know, bloating <laughs> bloating is a beautiful bad. thing. Yeah, you ain't, you <laughs> it ain't. means you're working. Your body's working for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, most of my clients are meeting their fiber needs. So if you're eating fiber and you're getting, you know, plenty of diverse range of foods, you're going to have bloating. You're going to have gas. Like we got right. I got to start a hashtag like normalize poop talk or like normalize normalize bloating. Bloating <laughs> like it's it's normal yes. to have those. So And this is not to downplay those who really do uh, suffer from chronic conditions yes. that bloating is a serious side effect from. That that's not what I'm talking about. But um, definitely gassy babies and just you know parents being upset or, or anxiety ridden over constipation and babies, you know, a little bit of that can be normal. But I just encourage parents to have transparent, open conversations with their pediatricians and primary care providers, uh, just because there is a lot of misinformation on the internet and it's important to, to seek trusted, reputable sources. Mm, yeah. I think that's, that would be across all boards when it comes to nutrition and wellness advice is, you know, sound communication, a good support team, knowledgeable. Um, yeah, that goes a long way. Definitely. Wow. So, I mean, I feel like we crammed a lot into this one episode and we I did. Yeah. So are there any other, I know you mentioned like skin to skin. Um, we obviously just kind of touched on the importance of dietary and then, you know, environment in general, we know that our environment is, is really supportive of a healthy gut bacteria. The research has shown like 
you know, you look at Asian populations versus, you know, children who are grown up in the U.S. and you see different gut compositions based on just the environment that you were grown up in, you, you know, irrespective of the dietary um, practices there, it's, it can really play a huge impact. Is there anything else you would add to that list of impact on the gut microbiome? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this hypothesis that we're too hypoallergenic in our mm. environment, right? So I just recommend to parents, let your kid be a kid, let them play in the mud, dig in the dirt, get all that good exposure. And that really does impact their gut mic- microbiome for the better. Have a dog, have a cat, <laughs> have a pet. Research has shown that that can improve things too. So little, little seemingly small changes really do impact over the long term quite profoundly. I love that. I mean, let me, let me call my mom in here who wouldn't let me get a dog when I was growing up. (laughs) I couldn't get a dog either. Seriously. (sighs) My gut would have been so much healthier. I know. Oh gosh. Um, But we're, we're doing okay. So yeah. Okay. Well, I love that. I love those, those mentions. Um, I actually did a post on uh, the research behind having a pet and how that can impact diversity. So again, so cool clearly something that I'm a little still butthurt about. Um, so that was wonderful, Caroline, that information. Um, I hope that everybody listening has, has been able to digest a lot of that. Um, what would you say are, could you give us the listeners three big takeaways for how to improve the gut microbiome for an infant, or maybe for the, obviously the parent listening, how they can, um, promote, you know, a sound, solid groundwork for a child to grow up healthy through a healthy gut. Yeah, definitely. Well, I would say take starting solid seriously and seek help. So if you'd like me to help you, again, I see clients one-on-one to do the baby-led approach. And if you don't want to do the baby-led approach, I'm happy to uh, teach you ways to start purees in a way that still allows for that variety. Um, So seek support and really do take it seriously because if you haven't already noticed from this recording is that we can make a profound difference from the very first months of life. So I think it's pretty cool. So that'd be my number one is always seek um, a trusted source for your information and seek help. Number two, um, realize that it's never too late to start this type of thing. So if you didn't know this when having a child and you want to begin now, you know, it, you're gonna, your child's going to be better off for it. We, so much of this microbiome research has only been done in the past 10 you know, years, 15 years. So I didn't have it when I was a child growing up and, you know, so much profound research in in the nutrition space has been done just within the, the recent years. So start today and, 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 you know, view tomorrow as a brand new slate to, to get going with this. And then lastly, um, just really focusing on fiber rich sources, because we know that that is without a doubt, one of the best, uh, most efficient ways to improve the diversity of the gut microbiome. So things like chickpeas, lentils, whole grains, like oatmeal, quinoa, um, leafy, dark greens, berries, all of those things are going to be fiber rich. All of those are safe for your baby to, to eat. So those are my three tips. Love it. Those were great tips. And for those who are interested in, you know, the research that we did bring up, I'm going to link those in the show notes, especially the one with the link to arsenic and rice. Um, there's also a really great resource that I'll link in there that is um, a consumer lab or a consumer report, sorry, of kind of how to choose a good, um, you know, choose different cereals or products for your baby and just for yourself looking at the contents. And if you look at where the rice is grown, things like that. 
So Caroline, um, if people are interested in working with you, um, your Instagram page is a wealth of resources. Um, your, the clinical dietitian.com is that the website? So it's, uh, I'll correct you just slightly. It's, uh, the clinic dietitian.com spelled with a T dietitian with a T. Um, and then my handle on Instagram is the same at the clinic dietitian. So come over. Um, I've got like a link tree with all the links that you can work with me. I also have an ebook uh, for sale on my website, all about starting solids via the baby led weaning approach. Um, it's also got breastfeeding tips. It was co-written with a lactation educator as well as a dietitian. Um, so that would be a great resource if some parent is just wanting to learn more and kind of uh, read up on that. So check it out. Awesome. Well, I know for sure. I feel grateful that I have you on my speed dial because when you have a child, let me teach it how to eat. (laughs) Seriously. I'm like, I'm so grateful that I have you as not only a colleague, but a friend. This is this, you're a wealth of knowledge in this field. And I cannot thank thank you you enough for coming on this episode. It has been such a pleasure. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your evening. It's my pleasure as well. Anytime. All right, girl. Well, I will definitely be seeing you. So Okay. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Bye. Take care. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your gut health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, visit nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut, which is a great resource for anyone who's looking to improve their health. I have had such great feedback from this book. People have seen improvements in their digestion, cleared up skin conditions, reduced cravings, and even been successful at reaching their weight loss goals just from using the meal plan in the back of the guide, which, mind you, is filled with delicious recipes. So thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to share the health.